I think this is one of the worst laws I've ever seen in over 20 years of covering the news. And I don't even think it's borderline fascist, I think it's totally fascist. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, The Tom Hartman Program, Citizen Radio, Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and The Young Turks. You may have noticed there have been a lot of protests lately. Take February 11th, for instance. Plans for a candlelight walk against the Muslim ban in D.C., a Resist Trump rally in San Francisco, Colorado stands with Planned Parenthood in Denver, defund Planned Parenthood rallies across the country, a smorgasbord of protests in New York City against Trump, mass incarceration, and fur. But some local and state governments have pushed back against such exuberant, ubiquitous political expression, which of course has been mounting for months. Protesters fill the streets of Milwaukee upset over Donald Trump's victory in the presidential election. Protesters demonstrated at the State House in Raleigh Friday as the outgoing Republican governor, Pat McCrory, signed the first of several measures limiting the powers of his soon-to-be predecessor, successor, Democrat Roy Cooper. Standing Rock protests have been taking place all around the country as advocates fight to keep the pipeline from being built on tribal land in North Dakota. The move to restrict speech in the street has come almost entirely from the political right, in the name of law and order. In North Dakota, legislators have proposed a law that would indemnify drivers who negligently hit protesters on the highway. In Washington state, they've proposed upping the charge for some forms of civil disobedience to a felony. All in all, at least 10 states have pushed forward legislation to increase the cost of exercising your First Amendment rights. Lee Rowland is a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Lee, welcome to OTM. Thanks so much for having me. Give me a rundown of some of the proposals, please. Well, you've mentioned uh, some of the proposals that have already rightly been met with national ridicule, including the bill in North Dakota that would literally excuse a driver of vehicular manslaughter if the person they hit was a protester. We're also seeing a, a somewhat ludicrous bill in North Carolina to ban heckling after the governor was apparently embarrassed leaving a dinner last year. And we're seeing a number of states dramatically increase penalties for obstruction, which can be something as simple as showing up to a protest, having every intention to obey the law, and being jostled to the wrong side of a yellow line on the side of a road. Are there ways that legislators can, in the name of public safety or anything else, actually curb lawful protest in a way that's not going to get them in First Amendment trouble? As long as obstruction bills, that is the kind of bill that would make it illegal for you to stand in the middle of the highway, as long as those are actually tailored to public safety needs and they are enforced neutrally, those laws are generally constitutional. But that's not what we're seeing with this wave of bills. Every single city and county in this country has an anti-obstruction ordinance. What these bills do is pile on draconian penalties. So, for example, making it a gross misdemeanor or a felony to have your foot on the wrong side of the highway median or seek to charge you 
all the costs of a law enforcement response if you're one member of a protest that results in a need for a law enforcement response. So these are not what the courts generally consider to be tailored to public safety needs or other government interests that are neutral with regard to protest. Now, you said they've been ridiculed, and they have, but that doesn't make them necessarily unpopular. There's a bunch of nods of approval that go with these legislative attempts, are there not? Well, there's no question that there are certainly legislators who find this to be a popular enough idea to see this kind of legislation spread like wildfire. But the good news is that once they are publicized, once people find out that legislators at the beginning of the state legislative session are making it a priority to penalize protest, there is pushback. Bills so far aren't making it through the legislative session as we might see if they were bills likely to ultimately pass. Is it my imagination or are all, I mean, all of these attempts to squelch First Amendment rights originating from the Republican Party, state-by-state, jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction? As far as I'm aware, every single one of the anti-protest bills that's been introduced this year has been introduced by a Republican legislator. And I think that's a shame, right? First Amendment rights should not be a party issue, right? One thing about the First Amendment is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If Republican legislators think that they can introduce these bills and then only go after Black Lives Matter protests, they've got another thing coming. The First Amendment, if it means anything, means that the government can't pick and choose winners in political battles. I work at the national office now, but for many years I worked at the ACLU of Nevada. And while I didn't see a wave of anti-protest legislation like we're seeing now, from time to time, a bill would crop up that would increase penalties for obstruction or, you know, add the kind of draconian insurance or payback requirements that some of these bills we're seeing now would do. And not a single one of those bills ever passed. And one of the reasons was that as soon as these bills were introduced, also generally helmed by Republican legislators, Anti-abortion protesters would come to what they consider to be their Republican legislators and explain to them, this is going to make us a bunch of felons. Those bills tended to die a quiet death. Isn't it true that the First Amendment has become partisan, that it is perceived as the last refuge of a liberal scoundrel? You know, I I don't think I can agree with that. Even as you're asking me that question, I'm getting bombarded with questions about the free speech rights, for example, of Milo Yiannopoulos, who was by protesters hounded out of his right to speak at Berkeley last week. This is the provocateur associated with the alt-right and uh, columnist for Breitbart. That's right. And it's not the first time that Milo has been prevented from speaking because of a liberal outcry. From where I sit, it's not clear to me that anyone owns the First Amendment, and nor should they, right? It's a complicated civil liberty that tends to be loved only by nerds like those of us at the ACLU for the exact reason that it protects your leftist greed just as much as it protects your right-wing ideology. I mean, the ACLU represented the Nazis' right to march in Skokie in the 1970s. So we certainly understand that, indeed, it's perhaps most important to stand up for speech you vehemently disagree with precisely because we don't want the First Amendment to turn into a popularity contest.
you know, the whole Ann Coulter thing. Ann Coulter is a, is a hustler. I mean, you know, and I don't say that in to diminish her. She's a very good hustler. She's she's got a brand. It's it's her name. And she's made a lot of money selling books and giving speeches and basically being who she is. And she is milking this Berkeley thing for all it's worth. And let's just acknowledge that. But the people at the University of California at Berkeley are, I think, legitimately concerned about things like what I'm about to tell you. This is a story that was in yesterday's Guardian and by the uh, Guardian staff. The headline, Couple Charged in Shooting of Protester at Milo Yiannopoulos Event in Seattle. Now, Milo, he's, you know, he's a Ann Kohler wannabe, right? He's trying to build his brand to the point where he can get become as rich and famous as Ann Coulter by being an aggrieved conservative. You know, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a victim conservative. Ann Coulter wears her victimhood like a badge. So does Milo. So Milo shows up in Seattle to give a speech. And of course, there's a bunch of progressives outside demonstrating against him. And this couple, Elizabeth Hokana and Mark Hokana, Hokoana, uh, and her husband, He's 34. She's 29. This couple shot this guy named Joshua Dukes, 34, in the stomach at the protest. He was one of the protesters. So who are the couple? Well, in the charging papers, the King County, and this was outdoors, this was outside the auditorium. In the charging papers, King County prosecutor, I'm reading from The Guardian, but King County prosecutors say this shooting was not an impulsive act done in a moment of fear. Instead, the two went to the campus event with the intent. This is from the prosecutors, the police reports. The two went to the campus event with the intent to provoke altercations with protesters who they knew would also be at this controversial event. The prosecuting senior deputy prosecuting attorney, uh, Mary Barbosa, said, uh, she added, they created a situation designed to allow Elizabeth Hokoana to shoot the victim in the middle of an extremely crowded event under the guise of defending herself or her husband. And then it goes on to say, Mark Hokoana messaged a friend on Facebook the day before Yiannopoulos was scheduled to talk and said he can't wait for tomorrow, according to police officials. In the Facebook message obtained by a search warrant, he wrote, quote, I'm going to the Milo event, and if the snowflakes get out of hand, I'm just going to wade through their ranks and start cracking skulls. This is the guy who shot a protester in the stomach. The protester, the bullet went in through his abdomen and exited his back. Two months later, he still bears an oozy wound and a long surgical scar. He has lost his gallbladder and half his colon. His liver was severely damaged, his diaphragm pierced. This guy who got shot, his life is going to be shorter. And it's going to be much more difficult as a result of this attempted murder. Simply because he showed up to protest Milo and these right wingers, this right wing couple showed up with a gun. To attempt to provoke the protesters. This is the kind of stuff that's being done on the right. This is this is reminiscent of the brown shirts of the volunteer, you know, uh, pro fascism. The volunteer fascists who, who would show up at, at, uh, at, at Nazi gatherings and, and kick the bejesus out of, out of the protesters. It happened in Italy. It happened in Spain. It happened in Germany. It happened in Chile. It happened in Argentina. 
It's happening now in the United States. So I think, you know, as much as I have in the past, well, specifically yesterday, talked about the importance of, you know, free speech and diversity and all that kind of stuff. When this kind of thing is going on, we've got to pay attention. I hope you'll agree that finding trusted journalism to help inform our opinions should be high on anyone's priority list. And Texture, the premier magazine subscription app, features some of the most trustworthy, credible publications in the world in the form of magazines, but also the latest investigative journalism, U.S. politics, and domestic and international news. Texture is a very slick app. It was even selected as one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps, but not to worry, it's available on Android and Amazon devices as well. And the Texture app has gone beyond delivering just the magazine itself. They've made it easy to find and enjoy articles you want to read. Texture is searchable. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, view bonus video content, and they even curate articles and magazines just for you from the sources you trust, such as Time Magazine, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, The Atlantic, and dozens of others. Why subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you can have all of your favorites on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less. Texture is normally $9.99 a month, and you'll get over 200 magazines, but if you sign up right now at texture.com slash best, you'll get a 14-day free trial. That's texture.com slash best. KT writes in, recently I found myself struggling with the language we use when we talk about protests and other forms of activism, specifically why the narrative of rioting equals bad, violence, Nazi punching equals bad, flattens a complex issue. Nonviolent activism is always touted as the only acceptable form of resistance. While I do not think violence is good, I find this black and white view of the matter to be unrealistic, as history has proven. When I try to broach the subject, I come off as supporting acts that hurt innocent people and being an insensitive, bad liberal. This lets me know I've done a terrible job explaining myself. <laughs> I've heard you touch on the subject a few times uh, more broadly on the show, and you always do a good job. Thank you, Katie. Would you be willing to speak to the language that can be used to discuss this subject in a nuanced and productive manner? Wow. I find That's that... That's a heck of a question. It's a great question. I find that, and I like the question because it moves beyond, like, KT is acknowledging, I know that it's unrealistic historically to say violence equals bad. How do I communicate this? Yeah. So I find that you sort of touched on this already, where it's like using history as your example is really powerful. So the civil rights movement was not just comprised of nonviolent activists. No. There was also the whole time a very militant wing that was like, oh, we will use violence to defend ourselves. That's who Malcolm X was. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's who the the students who were organizing in the South Mm -hmm. were nonviolent, but they were staying with families that did have guns and would defend themselves when the KKK strolled by. Of course. Strolled by. Invaded like a terrorist organization because that's what they are. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because they meant to 
harm and possibly kill black people. Yeah. And the black families were like, listen, this nonviolent stuff is, is great for you guys, but the reality of our day-to-day lives in the South is we have to defend our lives. Guns were very central to the uh, black liberation movement. Yeah, and I promote this book every time we talk about this. But I was going yeah, to say yeah, that. Yeah, this nonviolent stuff will get you killed. It's Incredible a great book. book and so important because it. the central thesis of that book is that violence played a, a central role yeah in the civil rights movement a necessary role so and like martin luther king jr was aware of this and like but we never teach it in schools we teach martin luther we teach little kids that martin luther king jr was basically like a doormat well i think so this is what i was going to say i think uh, a really important framing device is uh to remember that nonviolent action and protest is a tactic right it was not that the the people uh, involved in it were um it, it's a tactic they chose that because of the optics of it right um a lot of the time uh, right because if they were perceived as like angry violent black people yeah the government would have destroyed them yeah, they would have they would have used that as just cause to retaliate harder. Yes. Um, so they were like, we have to be, we have to present ourselves as being this righteous, godly cause. Yeah, which is like, I am a vessel for the the shining light of justice. Yeah, <laughs> like egalitarianism. Uh, so that's who like Martin Luther King Jr. had to present himself as. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Malcolm X was like cool 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 also we're being occupied by a hostile uh military force Mm -hmm. and we should be able to defend ourselves and those two ideologies were central to the the civil rights movement yep and also to most social movements i would say yeah like uh the suffragettes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there were women who were like throwing Molotov cocktails. Yeah. The LGBT movement, ACT UP, very radical direct yeah. action yeah. movements. Yeah. So I think almost every social justice movement that you could study had right. a radical element to it. And it's not only important, it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Because if you just have a movement yeah. <laughs> comprised of non-violent actions yeah you're not threatening the establishment sure and that's the only way to affect change yep is how i feel about it uh i agree with that yeah. uh i would also say uh katie i had this really funny thought a second ago that i hope her name is not katie so <laughs> i thought about that but then i'm like wouldn't they have just written katie uh no i i've known a lot of katie's that go by KT. kt yeah uh, but it, there's a part so of me that hopes her name is not Katie, Katie or Katie. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope her name is not Katie. I hope uh, it's just a weird coincidence <laughs> that those are her initials. Um, but uh, I also would say uh, I don't think you are as alone in those thoughts as you think you are. No, no, certainly uh, not. I don't. Yeah. I don't think that section of the left that thinks that uh any sort of action that's not nonviolent is bad is as big as you think it is i'm you may be encountering a lot of those people but uh sorry desi oh, hello 
looked at Eric like he was about to give you the business. <laughs> like, hey, why aren't we hanging out? What the fuck, man? Uh, you talking about direct action? It's hey, my jam. <clears throat> yeah, I could see Desi uh, laying down some streets. Desi protests <laughs> every day for more yeah. food. <laughs> um. Yeah, I would say I think uh, this is a big conversation, and it's not as uh, I would say. Yeah, it's not as uh, that section of like um, Nazi punching is bad. I think that is that is a very big conversation. I, I was think- I was going to say also the people who are probably lecturing you about violence are not going to be swayed by you being like, but Malcolm X. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, they'll probably be like, right. Malcolm X was a domestic terrorist too. Right. There are a lot of people who believe that about yeah. Malcolm X. Mm-hmm. They don't view him as a civil rights hero. They think he was a domestic terrorist. Yeah. So, which I is also, obviously absurd. This might be unfair. I feel like uh, a lot of people I've seen lecturing about violent action are also not the people who are willing to do the nonviolent stuff, like yes. put themselves in front of yeah. police officers like, and lay down on it, the streets no, and it's stuff. It's a distraction because they they believe it's all invalid. Yeah. So they go after the most like fringe example they can find to be like, see, this is really dangerous or right. yeah. Um, and a lot of leftists play into that by saying, therefore we shouldn't have that element because it discredits the whole movement. Yeah. Which again is, Oh, he'll totally drink your water. By the way, you should guard that. Hello. Um, sorry, Desi loves to drink people's water. <laughs> Uh, it's ridiculous because it's like these people are go these naysayers will dismiss the movement no matter what. So you can't start to dictate terms based on people who are going to hate you and dismiss you regardless. Yep. Like imagine if Martin Luther King Jr. had been like, well, listen, um, people are really saying like the, the counter protests right. are are too far yeah. or the bus boycott is really yeah. disruptive. So maybe we shouldn't do that. Right. You know, like obviously you don't listen to the people who are not, who are saying you don't deserve equal rights. Right. Who, why would you listen to them? Uh, I think you guys have brought this up on the show before. I think you've mentioned this uh, in these types of conversations. Cause this is a conversation that comes up uh, from time to time. But I also think it's really important to remember that uh, uh, in terms of, in terms of terms, um, <laughs> perfect. Uh, uh, a really common talking point is they're like, you know, uh, Richard Spitzer wasn't doing anything and just got punched in the head by, uh, <laughs> senselessly. And what they're saying is, they remember that uh, the things that Richard Spencer advocates for are violent. Right. Uh, and they're like, yeah, all he was doing was giving an interview about how he wants an ethno state and he wants to <laughs> violently remove all minorities from the country. It's like, yeah, those are all violent sh- shit and right. he deserves to get punched in the head for it. Like, right. uh, I it's was just like an ASPCA commercial, but for like Richard Spencer, right. <laughs> won't you consider yeah. the Nazi, the poor <laughs> defenseless Nazi right, yeah, yeah. who was just talking about being a Nazi yeah. and turning the United States into a bunch of Nazis <laughs> suddenly an evil black right. protester punched him in the face for no reason. Yeah, it's like, an itch. What? That's part of the framing is like, yeah, the things he advocates for are violent and it's just it's just meeting violence with violence. Yeah. And you're not going to and it's defense. enthusiastically debate or convince a white supremacist no. into changing their opinion. The Absolutely only not. thing fascists understand is being violently confronted yeah. and defeated. Yeah. 
History teaches us that. Yep. There was no talking the Nazis out of anything. No. It was happening. Yep. So you either say people have the right to defend themselves against it or you support Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really that clear cut. Right, right, right. People try to complicate it in all types of different ways. Is it really fair to punch Richard Spencer? Yep. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. I think it's one of those things. It's like, yeah, he has a right to say whatever he wants to. Um, but people are very unaware of the like, yeah, it's all just speech until it becomes action. And at the point it becomes action, uh, it's too late. But like, Imagine talking to people like Jewish people who were in the concentration camps or your grandparents who participated in defeating the Nazis and yeah. being like, do you feel like you guys went too far? Right. Do, you, do you feel like you were too hard on the Nazis? Right, they would right, right. look at you like you were out of your mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like rightfully so. It was right. like, no, this was a force that could only be defeated. Right. And if we tried to compromise with them, as many countries tried to, history has taught us that only aided in assisting them yep. and enabling them yep so th- yeah there's no there's no compromise here no uh, you can't have a little bit of nazism and white supremacy i mean right. we we've had white supremacy it's a foundation of the united states right? right um but what i mean to say is you can't let richard spencer have some of what he wants no absolutely not right i hope he's afraid to leave his house forever <laughs> Uh, that, that, that's what I want. Fascists should always be afraid to come into public and spout their hatred and yeah. nonsense. Always. They should always be afraid, like, are is the black bloc gonna be here? Yeah. Am I safe? Like, of course I want fascists to always feel like they don't have a safe space. Yeah. In the United States. I'm gonna tell all you fascists you make be surprised. Now, those who subscribe to liberal values are supposed to, quote, defend to the death the right not only of their friends but of their foes to speak their minds. But anti-fascist protesters, or as they're more commonly known, Antifa, follow a different path. Mark Bray is a visiting historian at Dartmouth College and the author of Translating Anarchy, the Anarchism of Occupy Wall Street. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the origins of anti-fascism. When it first began, I assume back in the 20s? Sure. Well, anti-fascism is as old as fascism. And so certainly in the 1920s and the 1930s, as fascist regimes in Italy and Germany started to gain political prominence, a number of left political groupings, socialists, communists, anarchists, started to organize really primarily self-defense units initially because 
part of the Nazi and the Italian fascist modus operandi was to organize these paramilitary units that would terrorize their left opponents. And so the different communist parties and socialist parties would organize their own anti-fascist militias, one of which was called anti-fascist action, the first group to use the name that's now become common for anti-fascist organizations around the world and the derivation of the shortened term Antifa. Moving into the 1930s, Spanish Civil War and the struggle against Franco spread anti-fascist organizing around the world. And then in the 1980s and 1990s, you have a rebirth of anti-fascist organizing, especially starting in, in Britain, in Germany, as neo-Nazis started to target migrants and other marginalized communities. And what we see today is the spread of that to the United States and beyond. Now, one of the most frequently cited actions in Antifa history is what's referred to as the Battle of Cable Street, right? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Talk about that, because it does begin to set the stage for what we're seeing now. It certainly does. In 1936, the leader of the uh, British Union of Fascists, Mosley, organizes a march of a couple thousand fascists through the east end of London, which is a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. And so in response to that, a whole group of leftists and Jewish residents of the area and other ethnic minorities organized a militant demonstration against this fascist march. How many? Between like 15 and 20,000 people. This was a massive response. The police did what they could to defend the fascists from the anti-fascist demonstrators, but ultimately were overpowered. The fascists had to cancel the march and essentially back down. And so this Battle of Cable Street is really an emblematic example of anti-fascist politics put into practice in terms of preventing fascists from marching through a Jewish area. But not just that, right? Antifa is fundamentally against the right of fascists to speak and be heard. That's entirely correct. So in your open, you mentioned the popular slogan that liberals have adopted from Voltaire that I may disagree with what you have to say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. Mm -hmm. Anti-fascists fundamentally disagree with that premise. They argue that given the horrors of Auschwitz and Treblinka, the destruction that Nazis have caused, that fascists, white supremacists, should not be granted the right to express their ideas in public, in part because, they argue, had that been done early in the 1920s or the 1930s, we may have been able to bypass what ended up happening. I get that as a tactic, but I'm still not sure how the philosophy of anti-fascism squares with the liberal values of free speech and open dialogue. And I guess it doesn't. To some extent, it doesn't. The question is, if we want to prevent something along the lines of what happened in the 1930s and 40s from happening again, how do we do it? And the liberal prescription for doing it is essentially free and open debate and dialogue. And if Nazis do something illegal, then hopefully the police will stop them. Anti-fascists recognized that in the 1930s, 1940s, the police supported fascism. The fascists didn't actually stage a revolution to come to power. They worked within the political system. And all the reasonable dialogue and debate that one could muster did not do the job. The argument is that if we want such a horrific crime to not reoccur, it needs to be nipped in the bud through a variety of tactics, but one of which is through violently disrupting Klan rallies, neo-Nazi speeches, and, and so forth. And the other thing to remember is that anti-fascists identify as communists, as anarchists, as socialists, and want to really organize for a revolutionary rupture with the prevailing political system. And then this is in line with that. So that's also another reason why the two philosophies don't quite jive. So the liberal idea 
that in a marketplace of ideas, the good ideas will rise to the top and the bad will drop out the bottom. They don't buy that. You don't buy that either? Well, unfortunately, terrible ideas have risen to the top throughout history. The liberal ideal is that the government is a referee in a game that all parties are invited to play. But in actual fact, whenever left groups have become threatening, you get red scares, you get repression, you get COINTELPRO in the 1960s and 70s. And so essentially anti-fascists are arguing that we want a political content to how we look at speech and society, which is drastically different from a liberal take, and that this entails shutting down the extreme manifestations of fascism and neo-Nazism. And we need to recognize that this is not simply a question of whether a fascist government will come to power or not. I'm skeptical that such an explicitly fascist government would come to be, but that those who carry out hate crimes, they feel emboldened when their ideas become mainstream. And so the idea with anti-fascist politics is to prevent those ideas from having that opportunity. But where does it stop? I mean, how are we different from our fascist opponents if we both subscribe to the idea that speech should be repressed when when we regard the message to be dangerous. Germany has a prohibition against advocating for Nazis publicly. That doesn't mean that Germany is a closed society where people can't say whatever they want to say. You can have some prohibitions against speech without going all the way. In the context of an increasing number of hate crimes, the Southern Poverty Law Center cited over 800 such crimes immediately following the election of President Trump the idea is that the people who carry out these crimes are listening to Richard Spencer speeches, going on Stormfront websites, imbibing this hateful doctrine, and that to the degree that we can shut it down, we will make fewer people copycatting them into attacking vulnerable populations. Most people would agree that it was acceptable in the 1930s and 1940s to organize armed resistance to the Nazi regime. The question is, how terrible does it have to be before that becomes legitimate? And the anti-fascist answer is, you need to nip it in the bud from the beginning. You wrote that, quote, liberals tend to examine issues of sexism or racism in terms of the question of belief or what is in one's heart. What is often overlooked in such conversations, you said, is that what one truly believes is sometimes much less important than what social constraints allow that person to articulate or act upon. Right. So the, the message that I'm trying to get across with that is we have a certain set of societal taboos around what one can say and can't say, and those have shifted over time. The words that are acceptable to use about different ethnic minorities, about women, about all sorts of groups have shifted over time. And the way that I think that we maintain a firm barrier against the alt-right, making racism okay again, making sexism okay again, is to really increase the social cost of presenting oppressive views out in public so that when someone like Donald Trump says something sexist, we raise a ruckus, we disrupt business as usual to make it so that it's not acceptable to raise these views in public, increase the social cost of that being able to be a public discourse and push back through politics. So what does the American Antifa movement look like? What are its tactics? Under that specific banner, it's still relatively new and is finding its way. But a lot of anti-fascist or Antifa groups have formed in different cities around the United States. A lot of what they do is researching information on local white supremacists, who they are, where they live, where they work, sometimes pressuring their employers to get them fired, 
sometimes making sure that if they organize private events at local venues for white supremacists, they pressure the venue owner to try and cancel the event. So that research and coalition building with groups that are affected by various forms of fascist or white supremacist violence is a lot of what's done. What gets more of the headlines is when the demonstrations come out onto the street. And so, as I'm sure you and and a number of listeners are well aware, there have been high-profile instances recently, such as in Berkeley, of trying to physically shut down events that has raised the profile of anti-fascism. Physically confronting people, that's part of the strategy, right? Yes, it is. It's an illiberal politics of (laughs) social revolutionism applied to fighting the far right. In a recent article, you advocated for everyday anti-fascism. That is, anti-fascism that goes beyond, quote, punching Nazis. Right. So these glamorous topics, you know, the the (laughs) video of Richard Spencer getting punched got millions and millions of shares. But if we want to think about how to create an anti-racist society, an anti-sexist society, we need to think about the everyday interactions that we have with each other at our workplaces, in our families, among our friends, and say, if someone is articulating a homophobic perspective or prejudicial against immigrants, am I doing what I can to try and change their mind? Am I raising some sort of opposition or am I tacitly going along with it because I'm just letting it slide? And so everyday anti-fascism is not having any tolerance for intolerance. It's not agreeing to disagree about hateful behavior. And it's saying, look, if you're going to be part of my life, you need to shape up. You can't treat people like this. You can't say things like this and holding people accountable. And ultimately, sometimes that means you need to end some friendships or it means maybe you should boycott the business down the street that's been rude to Latino immigrants. You say that our goal should be that in 20 years, those who voted for Trump are too uncomfortable to share that in public. Raise the social cost of being a bigot. And sometimes that's enough to make it so someone doesn't feel empowered to act on it in a way that that puts people in jeopardy. But there is a a growing radical sector of the left in the United States that is simply not going to take any chances with the possibility of alt-right politics becoming the mainstream. We have a Breitbart editor and white supremacists in the White House. We're not that many steps away from a situation where a crisis unfolds, the Trump administration uses some sort of emergency authorization to centralize power. And so if we want to make it so that alt-right ideas are not taken seriously, the anti-fascist argument is that you don't even let them start to have that kind of platform in society. This is the norm of anti-fascist politics in Europe, where many people remember the legacies of living under the Franco regime, for example, in Spain, and see how it has affected them in their everyday life. And it's not something that classical liberal sympathizers will feel comfortable with. Or as Jack Schaefer refers to me, public radio talk show hosts. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But that is a, a growing response to... Uh, white supremacist presence that has grown in alarming ways in our country. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper. They're the sleep brand that created one perfect mattress that they sell directly to customers, cutting out sales rooms and salesmen who watch you lay on a bare mattress for 15 seconds before you make a split decision about what surface you're going to want to sleep on for the next several years. Now, instead, Casper offers free delivery in the U.S. and Canada and a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. All in all, you get to try an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price 
risk-free. It's an award-winning sleep surface with a sleek design, just the right sink, and just the right bounce. It's breathable and sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night, an important factor to consider with each year getting hotter than the last. Plus, the same team developed an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets that Casper offers as well. As a special offer, you can get $50 toward any mattress purchase and support this show by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You can also find that URL listed on my website site, but again, it's casper.com slash best, and use the offer code BEST at checkout. I have a story here that originally appeared in Foreign Policy, the online magazine, on February 6th, 2016, by a Georgetown law professor named Rosa Brooks, and the situation that she went through when she wrote an article that asked the kind of question that we would ask on this program. You know, what would happen if a president all of a sudden did this with this power, a theoretical thing, which was then reprinted in some of these news magazines. And you know what they, I mean, go to Infowars, go to Breitbart. I mean, there's a bunch of these places where when when you read the comments by the people on the site, you just, you don't even know, know how to really factor it into your thinking. But when they reprinted the piece, they changed the headline, which everybody does. Everybody writes their own headlines and turned it into, she says, a piece where instead of a theoretical discussion, they asserted that she was calling for, say, a a military coup on the president and whatnot. And then she says, well, I'll let her say it for herself, but she basically says that the flying monkeys were unleashed. She writes, quote, a few days passed quietly after the column's publication. Then on Thursday morning, Breitbart, the news site, previously run by Steve Bannon, now Donald Trump's top political advisor, ran a story about my column headlined, quote, ex-Obama official suggests military coup against Trump, end quote. Within a few hours, she writes, the alt-right internet was on fire. The trickle of critical email messages turned into a gush, then a geyser, and the polite emails of the first few days were quickly displaced by obscenity-laced screeds, many in all capital letters, My Twitter feed filled up with trolls. Soon, extremists and conspiracy-oriented outlets from Infowars to openly white supremacist websites had moved from claiming that I had suggested a coup to asserting that I was demanding, planning, and threatening the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. By mid-afternoon, she writes, I was getting death threats. I am going to cut your head off, bitch, in full capital letters, screamed one email, Other correspondents threatened to hang me, shoot me, deport me, imprison me, or get me fired. This last one seemed a bit anticlimactic, she writes, end quote. She then continues, quote, The Georgetown University's president's office received a voicemail from someone threatening to shoot me. New America, the think tank where I am a fellow, got a similar influx of nasty calls and messages, and they are so nasty I will not read them to you. Um... But there's nothing political in it at all. My correspondents were united on the matter of my crime, she says, treason, sedition, inciting insurrection, etc. She says the only issue that appeared to confound and divide them was the vexing question of just what kind of undesirable I was. Several decided, based presumably on my first name, that I was a Latina and proposed that I be forcibly sent to the other side of the soon-to-be-built Trump border wall. 
Others presumably conflated African-American civil rights heroine Rosa Parks asserted that I would never have gotten hired if it weren't for race-based affirmative action. The anti-Semitic rants followed in, too. A website called The Daily Stormer noted darkly that I am, quote, the daughter of the infamous communist Barbara Ehrenreich and the Jew John Ehrenreich, end quote, and I got an anonymous phone call from someone who informed me in a chillingly pleasant tone that he supported a military coup, quote, to kill all the Jews, end quote. She then goes on to point out that this experience is not unusual, that this is what's happening when people write things that other people don't want to hear. This is not okay. And I want to point out once again, and, you know, I get accused often, um, especially by folks on the liberal side of things for what they call false equivalency, which means when I say something bad about Trump, I then say something bad about the other side. The problem is, is if you believe as I do, although, as I said, reevaluating because I maybe am wrong about everything. Um, but if you believe as I do, we're all in on this. This is, this is political hypocrisy that gets us here. And so to ignore your own hypocrisy because you don't think it's as bad as the other side, and you may be right, empowers the other side to ignore theirs because everyone does it, right? No one's taking the high road, and so everyone is justified in taking the low road. But, I mean, what's going on on college campuses and other places where folks on the progressive side of the ledger try to shut down other people speaking because it's hate speech or you don't like what they're saying or whatever? Don't you see that this is all part of the same problem? We're denying rights to others because we don't like what they say and we don't want anyone to hear it and agree with it. And we think that by doing that, we're creating a... If you shut down Hitler's speeches and you never got more Nazis, Dan, wouldn't that justify it? Don't you see, one, that that's totally un-American, totally un-American, and two, empowers other people to do the same to you? Whatever happened to exposing such ideas to the light of day... You know, counter-arguments, get up there and debate. This is a free and open society, theoretically, where the very First Amendment to the Constitution protects political speech. And I hear people say all the time, yes, you can go do it in a public square, Dad, but UC Berkeley doesn't have to pay for the police protection when some group on campus invites, you know, some radical speaker. Okay, so you're making excuses for why it's okay for you to shut them down. Again, you will give that same sort of rationale credence on the other side by doing that. Liberty and freedom is a golden rule thing, folks, and you don't get it if you don't give it. And saying, yes, but we're not as bad as the other side, ain't going to fly with the other side, which gets me to the real problem here, ladies and gentlemen, how you solve this problem. And once again, I am at a loss because the problem isn't Donald Trump. He could go rogue on, you know, nine twelve after the next big terror attack easily. I could see that easily. At the same time, the Democrats could win back the House of Representatives in the midterm elections in two years, and they could open up articles of impeachment, and we could go down a very different road. But until we can stop eating each other, and I don't know how to do that, you know, ripping out everybody else's throats, unleashing the flying monkeys from either side, and don't think the left doesn't have their version of flying monkeys, too, and you see it. I, I was watching Bill Maher the other night, and, and one guy was trying to say something, you know, halfway nice about Trump, which you can agree or disagree with, but then the other guy flips him off and says, screw you. I mean, folks, that's not helping either. You know, have the convictions to back up your cause with reasoned argument. And if you can't, no matter how noble your cause is, maybe you should leave it to somebody who can make a better, you know, debate out of it than you if all you offer is a middle finger.
And that's what all these people attacking this Georgetown professor are arguing. They're not arguing the politics of it. They're beating her down like a group of you know, cyber brown shirts. There's nothing American about that. You want to send an angry letter that disagrees on the politics. There's something very American about that. But there's a world of difference between the two. Doesn't that chill her free speech? Well, Dan, you know, you don't have a right to not have consequences for your speech. So the consequences are that she should have her head cut off, that she should get, you know, a thousand or two letters like that. I'm sorry, that's not free speech. That's Tolkien's description of the orcs. He described orcs as people who would go to a public execution and jeer and laugh and make fun. He said the, you know, the mob is the way maybe the Founding Fathers would have described them. Political argument, reason, debate, all that stuff. Yes, 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 that's American. What we're seeing now is un-American, and there's too many people reveling in it and justifying it. On both sides, there's your false equivalency, folks. There you go. You want some? There it is. But I see us as the problem. And so there is no false. It's not one side is bad and the other side is good. We got here in a bipartisan fashion, both sides ignoring, you know, the plank in their own eye to point out the splinter in the other guy's eye and clapped when your guy, you know, used the executive powers of the presidency in ways that pushed a little bit farther, you know, where the limits were, placed another straw on the camel's back, and yet protested and decried when the other guy did. So now we have a guy in there now not afraid to use all those powers with authoritarian tendencies that inexplicably a large part of America is not only comfortable with, but I saw one guy the other day on TV showing a daddy shirt saying, we have a daddy in office now. Who wants a daddy? He's not your leader. He's your servant. It's a little disgusting. Freedom is yours. Freedom is mine. Freedom so I can write down these lines If you and I agree Hold out your hand to me We will share our freedoms With our friends and family Freedom of speech Freedom to say Freedom to think This is my Lucky day, freedom of thought, freedom of dreams, freedom to believe that we all can be kings. In an effort to intimidate potential protesters in the state of Arizona, Republican lawmakers have just passed a law in the Senate, or I should say a bill in the Senate, that would essentially allow cops to seize assets from anyone who takes part in a protest who that might turn violent. Now, uh, it doesn't matter if the people involved were violent themselves, if they were involved in the protest and some individuals were deemed violent, well, they, they can have their assets seized by the cops. Now, this legislation has passed in the Senate. It's now going to the House, uh, but we'll see if it gets passed. It expands the state's racketeering laws now aimed at organized crime to also include rioting 
while also redefining what constitutes rioting to include actions that result in damage to the property of others. It would let law enforcement officials seize the assets of people who participate in protests that turn violent, even if those people had nothing to do with any violent incidents. It also gives cops the power to arrest people who planned the events, even if they did not personally commit violence. It's insane. So let's talk this out. Uh, and I think this is one of the worst laws I've ever seen in over 20 years of covering the news. Uh, and I don't even think it's borderline fascist, I think it's totally fascist. So let me explain. That means that if you show up to a protest and someone else commits an act of violence, it will be blamed on you. Not only will you be arrested, they can take the car that you came in. Now, it could also be that the person who committed the violence is against you. It could be a provocateur yes. and he could come in and go, okay, I smashed a window, now arrest everyone at this protest. And by law, according to this bill, they would be allowed to arrest everyone at the protest, seize all of their cars, all of their cameras, all of their phones, everything they've got. Well, you've just outlawed protests. It's the most un-American, most unconstitutional thing you could ever do. Now, if you even think about planning a protest, you're, you began to plan the protest, but the protest hasn't even happened yet. Okay, and then let's say you withdraw, you plan the protest, but you, hey, you know what, you were sick, you couldn't go. And some guy who is not with you commits an act of violence or, by the way, just damages property or whatever it is, anything that breaks the law in that protest, now they're going to call it retroactively a riot that you planned. And what can they seize? If you planned it in your house, can they seize your house? This is a RICO law. It is meant for mobsters. Yes. They can seize all your property. We this is the state acting as a thug to make sure you don't have the right to protest, which is guaranteed in the First Amendment. Right. This is this is civil asset forfeiture on steroids. But the intent here is not just to ensure that police departments make a buck off of pretending like they're investigating cases. This is meant to also intimidate people and convince them that it's a bad idea to organize protests and to speak out against elected officials. So think about that. I mean, that is a constitutionally protected right. And in this case, I mean, I would be afraid to get involved in any protest because I don't want my assets, uh, you know, seized by the cops if someone comes in and does something violent. And by the way, how do you ensure that the person coming in and doing something violent is actually involved with that cause? It actually believes in what that protest is meant to be about. How do we know it's not a provocateur who's coming in and trying to cause drama just so cops can come in there and seize assets? By the way, historically, governments have done this, whether it's here in the US, sometimes during the civil rights protests that were meant to be nonviolent and were strictly nonviolent, or in other countries. The government will send in someone uh, to cause violence, and then they will never actually charge the person who caused the violence because he's with them. They'll charge everyone else in the group. In Arizona, they're codifying it. They're making it, in this case, it's a bill that's already passed in the uh, Senate. In the Senate, and they're and they're saying, yeah, 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 yeah. We can if anyone caused your mass guilt. And of course it has a chilling effect. Of course it uh tamps down protests. Now uh they say, oh, that's because protests are are really problematic and potentially violent. Where where were these Republican legislators when the Tea Party was doing all the protesting. Remember when they would shout at town halls? Now they're worried about the town halls because it was it's progressives that are shouting at town halls. When the Tea Party would rage at those town halls, 
There were no bills like this that were proposed. Of course, Democrats wouldn't do it because they actually care about America. They care about the Constitution. They understand what this country is about. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, don't give a damn. They're authoritarians. They never liked this country in the first place. They never believed in our Constitution in the first place. Any opportunity to become dictatorial, a right-winger will take it. So he's, they're tearing up the Constitution in Arizona. Mm -hmm. And so they don't care about protests. Otherwise, they would have cared when it was a Tea Party. But now all of a sudden it's protests against them, and they're like, no, not the citizens must be protected. The government officials must be protected. That's right. Now, if you're a true conservative and not a sellout establishment politician like this, you'd be outraged at this. If you care about the Constitution, you'd be outraged at this. And by the way, we haven't even gotten to one of the provisions which I think is even worse than all this. Which provision are you talking about? I'm going to go to uh, quote Senator John Kavanaugh. He's one of the guys who proposes the Republican from Arizona. Now, one of the provisions in the bill uh, allows you to arrest people before anything even happens. So what is that? That's a thought crime. I'm going to quote the, the actual politician here. He says, you now have a situation where you have full-time, almost professional agent provocateurs, which is hilarious because he's actually totally reversed it, that attempt to create public disorder. Wouldn't you rather stop a riot before it starts? Do you really want to wait until people are injuring each other, throwing Molotov cocktails, picking up barricades and smashing them through businesses in downtown Phoenix? So before he lists that parade of horribles, he says, let's just stop the crime before it even happens, when it's just a thought. So if you're planning a protest, we are going to assume that the protest could be violent and arrest you for planning a protest. That's a thought crime. And that is the most unconstitutional law I have ever seen. And these guys claim to be in favor of the Constitution and claim to be pro-American. This is the least American bill I have ever seen in my lifetime. So now, if you dare to even consider using your First Amendment rights, in Arizona, if they get their way, they will arrest you and lock you up for thought crimes. We just heard clips today starting with On the Media highlighting the exclusively Republican-sponsored legislation to restrict the right to protest. The Tom Hartman program pointed out just one instance of conservative provocateurs attending liberal protests with the intention of becoming violent. Citizen Radio explained the history of violent and nonviolent resistance movements. On the Media interviewed an anti-fascist about the tenets of anti-fascism that run contrary to the principles of unrestricted free speech. Dan Carlin on Common Sense made the case for free speech. And finally, we just heard the Young Turks explain Arizona Republicans' un-American attempt to ban protests. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Jennifer from Ohio. I just listened to your episode on the science of the times, and I think that's the best episode I've heard from you yet. I'm a conservative Republican, and I listen to your show every once in a while. It usually feels kind of like opening a bag of hate mail, but this episode was really different. It was well-formatted, included content that seemed more factual, like, you know what I mean, less opinionated than usual. I'm definitely not a science, so climate change has always been something that I've been a little confused about. 
And I think so many people are partisan nowadays. It's hard to tell the difference between science that was developed from pure discovery and science that kind of had a seed purpose to begin with. But after listening to this episode, I really feel like I have a better understanding for climate change, what it is, what's probably causing it. Keep up the great work. I really love your perspective. Love listening to the show. I do have a suggestion for maybe a future episode. I'd love to hear um, any studies or research that's been done that's determined whether the country is more left-leaning or right-leaning or progressive or conservative, however you'd want to point that out. I think it'd just be kind of interesting to find out following the election recently. So keep up the good work. I'll be hearing from you soon. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And thanks to Jennifer, whose message we just heard, for her comments and her question. I can't say that uh, doing an entire episode on the positions the country holds, you know, progressive versus conservative, quite makes sense, but I will do a miniature episode for you right here, right now. Uh, This happens to be the specialty of Cenk, the host of The Young Turks. Not a lot of, you know, opinion spewing, although he does that as well, but he loves just taking polls not about liberal versus conservative, not about Democratic versus Republican, not about Trump versus Obama or Clinton or anyone else, just breaking down the polls on what Americans think about individual issues. That's where we get to the core about where people actually stand. You got to strip away all of the partisan bullshit and see what people actually think about what our government does and what policies it has. So. Here, right now, is a miniature episode. I've pulled together a few highlights from several clips of Jank talking about this over the years, addressing polls on contraception, abortion, marijuana, taxes on the rich, defense spending, climate change and regulating carbon emissions, and government services and support programs. Enjoy. Oftentimes you see uh, the mainstream media with the assumption that it's a center-right country here in the United States. Well, I always tell you that's not true. In fact, when you look poll by poll, issue by issue, the country is solidly and fundamentally progressive. Well, there's now more data from a variety of different polls on a variety of different issues, which once again proves that point. First, let's start nice and simple. We've got a Gallup poll on contraception. You know, there's been all this huge hubbub and the Catholic... Leadership sending letters to President Obama, the Republicans saying, oh my God, you know, the contraception can't be allowed at these religious institutions, etc. Well, just on the core issue of contraception, uh, well, how many Americans are in favor of it? Yeah, that would be 89% of all Americans. 82% of Catholics are on board, and 90% of non-Catholics are on board. Now, no one's surprised by this, but it's nice to show uh, to politicians uh, who believe that this is a really important issue in America. God, you know, it's got to be. You got to let the religious institutions make sure that they discriminate even against non-Catholics in not allowing contraception because they believe it is immoral. Well, if they do, they're in a tiny, tiny minority of the country. Okay. Now we move on to marijuana. Well, in the mainstream media, you hear 
that oh, you can't even think about legalizing marijuana. The Democrats aren't really in favor of it. The Republicans are obviously dead set against it. Oh my God, that's a fringe thing. No, 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 the American people are against that, except for the fact that they are totally in favor of that. Turns out in a new Rasmussen poll, which is a conservative polling organization, 56% say they favor legalization and regulation like you would with tobacco and with alcohol. Only 36% oppose legalization. That's not medical marijuana. That's all marijuana. 56 to 36. Crushing victory. Legalize it. And th- those numbers are soaring. They were, you know, just 47, 42 a couple of months ago in March. It was only a five point difference. Now it's a 20 point difference in the same polling organization. Gallup also had it at 50% and rising in a different poll. So the country in favor of legalizing marijuana, although almost none of our politicians are. Well, I'm glad we live in a democracy. And then you move on to uh, other issues. So, for example, uh, pro-choice, pro-life. Now, here, here's a situation. Well, it appears that the country is right-wing. And it's like, whoa, you're going to hear these first set of numbers, and you say, well, that's kind of depressing. So, first of all, pro-choice, 41%. That's it. In fact, 50% describe themselves as pro-life. There you have it. Center-right, right-wing country. Okay? So, uh, I was wrong, right? Wrong again, Bob. <laughs> of course I'm right. Because what has happened is the words have gotten loaded. And so people think like, oh my God, a pro-choice position. Now that means you're in favor of abortion. Well, I'm against that. No, no, no. I'm pro-life. I wouldn't do an abortion. No, no, no. You're misunderstanding the question. If you're pro-choice, if you think that women should be have the choice on whether they should have an abortion or not, that should be their decision, or whether it should be illegal and not their decision. Well, when they ask that question... of Americans believe that abortion should be legal. 72%. That's the real number for pro-choice. Only 25% say illegal in all circumstances. And there's the middle ground that say illegal and legal under some circumstances. But 72% is a giant percentage of the country saying, yes, it should be legal. Okay? So are we clear enough on that? The country, fundamentally progressive. Sixty Minutes Vanity Fair poll asked, "How would you like to balance the budget?" Coming in at an overwhelming number one, raise taxes on the rich. Sixty-one percent. Did they stutter? That is the American people saying, "Look, if you want to balance the budget, that's priority number one." Priority number two, as you can see on the screen there, is cutting defense spending. And that came in at twenty percent. How much more progressive can they be? Well, they said, well, how about uh, Medicare and Social Security? Should we cut those? Only 4% thought we should cut Medicare, and only 3% thought we should cut Social Security to balance the budget. And guess what they're looking to do right now in Washington? Cut Social Security and Medicare to balance the budget. This is about climate change and uh, carbon emissions. Now, look, there's a lot of reasons you'd want to avoid uh, carbon emissions. Uh, but, uh, of course, one of them is climate change, etc. Pollution is another one. And so how do the American feel, uh, people feel about that? Well, they feel very strongly. 65% of Americans support imposing mandatory controls on carbon dioxide emissions and other greenhouse gases. 
That's an overwhelming majority. Now, capping carbon dioxide, as in cap and trade, is roundly ridiculed by the Republicans. They just ran a whole campaign against it. And the Democrats almost never stand up for it. In fact, President Obama didn't push for it. The minute he ran into trouble in the earlier in his term, they proposed it in the House, it passed, they got to the Senate, there was a little bit of trouble from the Republicans and some Democrats, boom, they ran for the hills. And who's made an argument for cap and trade in the last two years? Not any Democrat I know, maybe a couple of progressive guys in the House, and that's about it. So no one has been arguing in favor of it, and still two-thirds of Americans say, yeah, that's very interesting, I would like to cap carbon emissions, mandatory caps. Because the country is fundamentally progressive. Do you know that 50% of Republicans said the same thing? Even the Republicans, even after all that propaganda and almost no defense, they still say cap carbon emissions, carbon dioxide emissions. By the way, this is a Gallup poll, okay? This is not some left-leaning poll, etc. I'm going to get to Gallup's role in this in a second. Look, when you look at the other questions that were asked, look at this. Setting higher emissions and pollution standards for businesses and industry. Now, this is what Republicans argue against. Don't, not, not for business and industry, it'll kill jobs. 60, I'm sorry, 70% of Americans say, yes, we should do that. Only 50, and Republicans, even a majority of them, 54% say, yes, make business do this. And spending more government money on developing solar and wind power, 69% in favor, majority of Republicans in favor. Spending government money to develop alter, alternate sources of fuel for automobiles and other widely ridiculed and mocked idea by the Republicans, 66% of the country, full two-thirds say we should do it. Majority of Republicans say we should do it. God, how progressive is the American people and how much more right-wing is Washington, D.C. than where Americans are? By the way, even uh, enforcing... strongly enforcing federal environmental regulations and setting higher auto emissions uh, as standards for automobiles. 64%, 62%, and close to 49, 47 for Republicans. So almost a majority of Republicans in that category as well. On the role of government, 69% of Americans believe the government should care for those who can't care for themselves. That is the central liberal philosophy. And and Rush Limbaugh will tell you that is not what he's in favor of. 69% of the country believes that. 74, I'm sorry, twice as many people want, quote, the government to provide many more services, even if it means an increase in spending, as want government to provide fewer services in order to reduce spending. So that goes 43% to 20%. So again, central liberal or conservative position. Do you want the government to spend more money for services or no? Not less services and spend less. Two to one, the liberal position wins. Uh, now, how about the economy? 77% of Americans think that Congress should increase the minimum wage. 66% believe that, quote, upper income people pay too little in taxes. 53% feel the Bush administration's tax cuts have failed because they have increased the deficit and caused cuts in government programs. Once again, liberal, liberal, liberal. And significantly so, 77%, 66%, etc. But that's not what you hear in the media, right? And, and these people who are answering these questions, they might even, not even think that they are liberal, because they, because they got in, immersed with all that propaganda too, and said, oh, I'm not a liberal. Oh, but do I want the government to spend more money? Of course, we should care for each other. What's the matter with you? You're not a decent human being, right? 
<laughs> and where should we get the money? Well, the upper income uh, brackets have more money, so we should raise taxes on them. But they don't think they are liberal. Right? But in reality, of course, these are all liberal positions. I'm just getting warmed up. Let me give you a couple more, okay? Because it's on almost every single issue. Social issues. 61% of Americans support embryonic stem cell research. 62% want to protect Roe versus Wade. Clear victories, again, for liberal positions. Um, on security, 60% feel the federal government should do more about restricting the kinds of guns that people can purchase. 60%? I thought 100% of the country was pro-guns. What happened? Because they're not reporting it right. You see, it's not a matter of do we take away your guns. When you ask, hey, should we have some restrictions on guns, 60% of the country go, yeah, of course we should. That's a liberal position. All right. The environment. 75% of Americans would be willing to pay more for electricity if it were generated by renewable sources to help reduce global warming. 79% want higher emission standards for automobiles. Liberal, liberal. Overwhelmingly so. Energy. 52% of Americans believe, quote, the best way for the U.S. to reduce its reliance on foreign oil is to have the government invest in alternative energy sources. 68% say that the public of the public thinks that U.S. energy policy is better solved by conservation, not more production. In other words, 68% don't say, don't drill, baby, drill, do more conservation. Liberal, okay? But if you use the word, oh, no, 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 I'm not a liberal. Although every one of my positions is liberal. How about health care? 69% of Americans think it is a responsibility of the federal government to make sure all Americans have access to health coverage. 69%. 76% find access to health care more important than maintaining, for example, Bush's tax cuts. And three in five would be willing to have their own taxes increased to achieve universal coverage. And as we saw as the health care debate, and this was, these are all studies from uh, the last uh, set of years. Okay, So it's not just today's studies. It, it encompasses a longer period of time. And as we saw in the health care debate, every single poll said we want a public option. We want the government to give us an option. And yet, that, those were all ignored. When you go issue by issue, America is definitively liberal, progressive, whatever you want to call it. Except when you call it liberal, the one poll says, no, 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 we're not liberals. Because Rush Limbaugh and Fox News made it a dirty word. But we've got to drill this through the mainstream media's head. Because it, we are not a center-right country. When it comes to every issue, we are a center-left country. Now, hopefully that was instructive, and and I just want to finish by putting a finer point on why it is we don't already know this as a country. Why do we not just fundamentally know that these are the positions that the American people hold? And uh, what I would say is that these issue polls almost never, ever get talked about in the mainstream media. And I'm not saying that the mainstream media makes up polls or fakes polls or anything like that and presents you know false information. That may happen, but that's not the argument I'm making. What I'm saying is that they will leave out these issue polls and they will focus exclusively on these binary polls. The do you support Democrats or Republicans? Do you call yourself liberal or conservative? Uh, Do you think that the Democrats are on the right track or on the wrong track? Same with Republicans. And these are so misleading because everybody has their own definition, first of all, of 
what a conservative is or what a, you know, what a liberal is. And you can call yourself conservative and also think it's a good idea to have universal health care. So why we would poll on these, these self-imposed labels makes absolutely no sense. But while pulling up these clips from the Young Turks, I, I stumbled across a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Fox News very recently, just in the, this last, you know, Trump's 100 days uh, span, they, they did this report, which is absolutely absurd, completely misleading, and doesn't necessarily contain anything that's false. So have a quick listen. This is how they introduce the segment. Well, as President Trump celebrates 100 days in office, the Democrats are celebrating 100 days of resistance. Following that, they play a, a long montage of Democrats denouncing Trump, saying he's terrible, they don't trust him, they don't like him, and so forth. I'm, I'm editing most of that out, but here's just you know a piece of it. I oppose this president. I do not honor this president. I do not respect this president. And then see how they frame the conversation that follows. But how far has all of that gotten? A new poll reveals that 67% of voters believe the Democratic Party is out of touch, including 44% of Democrats. So they set it up that Democrats are speaking out vociferously against Trump, and then you are presented with a single binary poll asking whether or not Democrats are on the right track or the wrong track, you know, in touch or out of touch with the American people. And when a lot of people say they're out of touch, it puts in your mind, well, all of those 67% of the country must think it's wrong to criticize Trump. That is absurd. And, and they, they double down by saying even 40% of Democrats think it's wrong to criticize Trump, presumably. No, that is absurd framing and intentionally misleading. I refuse to believe that the people running Fox News are stupid enough to think that that is a legitimate framing that actually conveys some sort of useful information. Because I'm a person who thinks that the Democratic Party is out of touch with the American people because of, li listen to all those polls we just heard. Listen to the positions that the American people have and then see how often the Democratic Party strongly upholds that vision presented by that polling data. Almost never. So, yeah, they're clearly out of touch with the American people. The American people are clearly more progressive than the Democratic Party. So I would say the Democratic Party is out of touch with the American people, and I would have answered that poll with the majority, and Fox News would have just framed my answer as, well, uh, he must be saying that the Democrats shouldn't be uh, in insulting and, and disrespecting Donald Trump uh, after his uh, first hundred days. If you don't see how that is intentionally misleading, then I guess you just deserve to continue watching Fox News and being intentionally misinformed. And that is not nearly the first time they've done that. The same trick was played with polling about the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. The same exact thing, with two different names. People would be asked whether or not they supported the Affordable Care Act or not, given basically a binary choice. If I had been asked that, I would have said no because I wanted it to be more progressive, not less, because I wanted the government to be more involved, not less, because I wanted single-payer universal system, not less. And Fox News would have taken that same polling that showed this mishmash of people, some of whom disapproved of it because they're conservatives and don't want the government involved, and some people who are more progressive and wanted more government involvement, pile them all together and frame it like, see, the American people hate Obama's 
healthcare policy and they don't want it. When, of course, a huge percentage of those dissenting voices were saying, no, I don't like it because I want you to do more. So yes, I think that the country is profoundly progressive in general, and when you break it down issue by issue, it only becomes more and more clear that that is true. And when you see polling that says, uh, you know, a vast majority of people think that the Democratic Party is out of touch, or, or that, uh, you know, more people call themselves conservative versus liberal, there is absolutely no inconsistency there. It is a manipulation of language when in, in terms of labeling, how we label ourselves. A lot of people think liberal is a dirty word or you know, progressivism is a dirty word, and so they don't want to call themselves that. But maybe even unbeknownst to them, they still believe in progressive ideas. And in terms of the parties themselves or, or a specific, uh, you know, policy proposal like healthcare, uh, you know, coming out of Obama's administration or, or this question asked by Fox about whether or not the Democrats are in touch, that in no way informs the debate about where people want to go. Asking if people are in favor of the Democrats or opposed to them gives you zero information about why they're opposed to them. They, they treat politics like it's a binary issue where you either love the Democrats or you love the Republicans and there is no in-between. If, if you're dissatisfied with the Democrats, or you think that they're out of touch, well, then you must be a Trump supporter. See, look, 67% of people presumably support Donald Trump. It's unbelievably dishonest. So forget everything you've ever heard about politicians or parties. None of it matters. Focus on the issues. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained Stories and forget who it is with